You want to go down here? Go. Now let's come back to our study of the amazing Old Testament prophecy of, of Micah. I trust that uh, our appetites have been whetted a little bit this morning in, in the, this powerful, powerful message that, that, as we indicated this morning, still has enormous relevance for us today. Enormous cultural relevance as well as theological relevance for us. One of the things that, that we shall see, and this will come out more strongly on Wednesday night probably and on Sunday morning next week, Lord willing, is, is the, the glory of Jesus Christ as Messiah stands out so strong in this book. When we think of the great servant songs of Isaiah, you know, there are seven of them in that second section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, and, and they magnify our Savior. But there are many in the first part, you know, you think of chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11 and, and many other parts of that Isaiah prophecy. We, we, we think of that very commonly because Isaiah is so often referred to. And, and sometimes this little seven-chapter book of Micah is, is forgotten. And that's one of the things that, that we wanted to remind ourselves this morning, that all of the Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is profitable. And so for us, we want to see, well, what is this particular, the specific prophet that we can see from this prophet? If you don't mind me doing a play on words. Some of you got it, I think. No, I'm kidding. But, but we're going to see that this, this is, I'm using that because later in chapter 1, what is officially the literary name for it is paranomasia. You know, when you do a play on words. And there are, there are a couple of ways you can do a play on words. You can do a play on words where their words sound dissimilar. Or you can do a play on words where the words, you, you use a title for something and then you talk about it with reference to the same and it has the same meaning. We're going to see our Lord do that here. And, and so that's one of the things I just want to remind ourselves as a little, little thought. I, would, I talked about five of the profitable reasons for our study in Micah. And we mentioned three of them this morning. And, and the Messianic prophecies would be the fourth one. And the fifth one would be this, the, the literary beauty of this prophetic book. is To me, to me it is astounding. I mean, the more I spend time looking at it and comparing it and delving into it, the more it's like looking at a diamond. The more you look at it, the more beautiful it becomes. And, and this book is like that. Now, all of the books of the Bible are like that. We shouldn't be surprised. If man can do something with literary prowess, God invented literature. <laughs> he made the minds that enabled men to do it. And so I would expect, as I come to the Word of God, and one of the reasons why I love to read the, I, in the first thing in the morning, well, coffee might be the first thing to help make me alert when I get to the Scriptures. But, but after that, the Scriptures, because I thrive on these now. Now, it wasn't always like that in my life. And it may not be like that in your life yet. But that's the, that's, where we're, that's the direction we're headed, right? That's where we want to encourage in biblical discipleship to bring our younger people along, to bring our older people along to that kind of idea of value of the Scriptures, that, that it's our lifeblood, that we, we get our sustenance from it. It's like when the Israelites went out and to, to, to pick up the manna. They went out and got the manna for how many days? Four or five? A couple of weeks? And stored it up? Each day. Each day, of course, Sabbath, they, the day before the Sabbath, they took two days worth. But each day, and, and, and if they tried to hold it over, what happened? It spoiled. And God was teaching a principle there. Feed on me. You have to feed on me every day. You can't feed on me tomorrow for last week's treasures. It doesn't work like that. Now, some of us with our busy schedules, we wish it would work like that. But it doesn't work like that. And if we try to do that, believe me, you're going to fall flat on your face spiritually. You're going to sin. You're going to fall to temptation. And, and the Lord doesn't want that. We don't want that. We don't want the shame and guilt that goes with that, right? And so we've seen there, here in, in uh, Micah, and of course just his name, Micaiah. Remember, Micaiah was the, the great prophet that stood up in the time of Elijah. We think of the Elijah, sorry, Elijah and Elisha. And, and there, but there were other great prophets even in their day. And Micaiah was one of them. Remember, he was the one that stood up to Ahab and gave that tremendous vision of the throne of God. 
to Ahab when Ahab was trying to decide about going to remote Gilead to fight the Syrians. And, and he paid a big price. He got put in prison for it. And he was told to be fed with the bread of affliction and the water of affliction. In other words, minimal food and water. He had to suffer for telling the truth. Are you willing to suffer for the truth today? Am I? I mean, really. Are we willing? It was great to be with the young people at camp this summer and see their energy for the Lord and see their, their desire to, to learn His Word and to live His Word. But it's one thing to do it in a somewhat cloistered, isolated environment at camp where everything is encouraged and spiritual things are encouraged. It's another thing when you leave camp to do it when you go back in your community. That's where the real test comes, doesn't it? Well, we saw here this first oracle. One commentary has said that there are 22 separate oracles. Now, there, it takes a lot of reading through a book like Micah, not one or two or five or ten, probably 25 or 35 times, to begin to see the divisions between these various oracles. Some of them are more clear and some of them are not so clear. Now, whether there are 22 or whether there are maybe 14 or 15, you know, is debatable, right? Because of where the breaks occur. And we'll look at some of that, uh, probably not so much tonight, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, on how the book divides up. But there are definite oracles. And this first oracle, this hear all you peoples, we looked at this morning. And I just wanted to remind you of the picture that I didn't have time to get to this morning that I thought of in, in working on this. He, he, when he says, when God says, I against you, that's not good, is it? I against you. In, in the literal, that's the, the I am is, is one word. So it's really I am, I against you. Now, I think of, you know, that uh, at camp, Brother Ralph put together this uh, tug-of-war gadget. I don't know if he's put a name on it yet. Brother Bob was out there with him. And, and, but it's a four-way tug-of-war. You know, we're familiar with a two-way tug-of-war. How about a four-way tug-of-war simultaneously? But he put together this gadget where they were able to do that, and it was a lot of fun. But think of that. Put that in a spiritual picture. A tug-of-war is a good spiritual picture of what he's talking about here. How would you like to be in a tug-of-war with God? Who do you think is going to win? I know where I'd put my money, and I'm not a gambler. I'm using that expression. Don't get the wrong idea. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord is the one that's going to win. It, that, that, is, that is not a good place to be. But, beloved, He's speaking to the people of God. And the people of God, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, really did do that in the 8th and the 7th centuries B.C. They did it again in the 1st century A.D. when our Lord was here, didn't they? And, and to go face to face against God. Now, there are a few times in my life where I felt like in, in prayer and in a, making a decision where I was face to face with the sovereign will of God. And it rattled me. <laughs> it scared me, rightly so. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? And, and that, you know, when you realize when the Lord is saying, okay, Thomas, you brought this up, you brought it up, don't bring it up again. You know, there are times in our lives where we're pushing for something we really want. And we just feel it has to be the Lord's will. And the Lord says, enough. Stop. Trust me. My will is best. I am good. You're not. I always do good. You don't, he says to us. And then we begin to sit back and stop fighting it. Now, some of us, you know, we have different personalities, and as many different people as in this room, we have different personalities. But there are certain categories that you kind of lump different groups of behavior in. Mine is kind of one that's, uh, you know, a determined kind of a person. I don't think I'm oppressive, compulsive. I hope not. <laughs> you know, they talked about that in school. The oppressive, compulsive.
personality. He has to straighten out a paper clip on the table. If it's not just right, he's going to straighten out that one paper clip. I don't think it's that bad. But I am single, so I mean, I don't have anybody to, you know, kind of watch me at home and see how, how bad it is. But maybe that's why I'm single. But the Lord knows what's best. The Lord knows how He made each of us. And some of us are more passive and accepting of the Lord's will in our lives. And some of us that are more aggressive and active in personality, well, He has to kind of slow us down, right? He has to kind of slow us down. And believe me, the Lord has some amazing ways to do that. And I have seen him in my own life. I've seen him in the lives of friends of mine, Christians. And so it's not good to be opposed to the will of God, is it? And that comes back to what we said this morning in 2 Timothy 3.16. Where are you going to find the will of God? One place, the Word of God. Now, the, the Lord may use the different ways of communicating the Word of God to us through a friend, through a, a Bible study, through a message we hear, through our own personal reading, and, and through an impression He can even make on our hearts. I believe the Lord can do that. But it's still the Word of God that He's going to use to do that. And so we saw this, this oracle of, of judgment and doom. And it began, now you remember in verse 1, that the entire book is addressed primarily to concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Right? So we see in Hosea, Hosea's message, you look at his introduction, and it's addressed just to Samaria, just the northern kingdom, to Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And you look at the beginning of Isaiah, the son of Amos, and who is he? He's addressed primarily to the southern kingdom, right? He mentions just the kings of the southern kingdom. So here's another value of Micah. Micah addresses the north and the south. He's contemporaneous with both those prophets. He lived, as we said, in the area of Lachish in the southwest of Judah, the territory of Judah. But he is addressing both the northern and southern. Now, he, in his day, the northern kingdom falls, right? Samaria literally fell just like he said it here in 722 B.C., that's documented in the Bible. If you're not sure about the date, you do the checking out. You check me out on the math. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. But secular history affirms that too. In fact, the Assyrians themselves, as we talked about, they did these great wall reliefs. I mean, in their palace, you walked into their palace and you can look on the Internet or different resources to see pictures that people have taken of the palace in Nineveh. It was, it's been un uncovered archaeologically. And I think the British got it from the Turks back in the in time of World War I when the Ottoman Empire that controlled, you remember, Turkey and all of the Middle East and much of the area of Iran and Iraq after World War I, the Ottoman Empire that controlled it for 500 years from 1517 to 1917 and finally it falls. I said 500, that's 400, isn't it? Check my math on that. 400 years. That then that, that area was divided up. You might remember and France took portions of it and England took portions of it and the European allies split it up. And that is apparently, I think, when the British Museum got a hold of so many of those artifacts from Nineveh and brought it to London, <laughs> to their museum. As someone said, I guess the, the winners get the spoils like that. Now, I understand, I was talking to one of the brethren here this morning, that you know some of these countries are wanting to get their treasures back. And I can understand that. Nothing against you British people. <laughs> but I can understand that. Uh, you know, they was taken, these are, these are national treasures that were taken from their country. So the great fall of Samaria. And that, that comes down through verse 7 we looked at. So let's pick up with our reading in verse 8. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a, a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. Now, not Samaria. Samaria finishes out in verse 7. Now Micah turns to the southern kingdom. And it has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Now Micah's attitude here 
is a proper attitude for a child of God when he is disciplining us or if he's disciplining a friend of ours who is a child of God and we know where they're going under the discipline of God what God wants us to do is to mourn to weep to wail to humble ourselves, to put on sackcloth and ashes, as it were, in a spiritual sense. Not necessarily physically, although if you're led to do that by the Lord, you could do that too. They used to do that. Cover themselves with a burlap bag and, and throw dust and dirt on their heads to, to help their hearts and their minds agree with their wills that, that they were humbling themselves. They were at a time of mourning. One of the things that we see characterizes the hardened hearts of God's people in a time of divine intervention, like we said the Assyrian invasion was. One of the things that is, is, a, is, an, is a hardened attitude towards, almost a bitter attitude to, towards God. Right? And that is not fruitful. That's not helpful. That means you just punched the card and said, guess what? Your discipline's going to need to last longer now. <laughs> now that's not how we expect it to happen when we hardened our hearts against God, but that's what happens. See, the Lord, He's personal. He works with us personally. He knows how He made us. He knows how we are. And He knows what works in our lives. And one of the things that we have to admit, this is sad to say, but I think we have to admit, in our day, in, in, the, in the church of the living God, amongst true Christians, true believers, is that when we see a brother or sister fail, we gloat. Uh, in, if we're really honest, if we see a brother or sister fail and go under the discipline of God, rather than weep, and wail and pray for them and intercede for them on our knees, we gloat as if we would never sin like that. And what does 1 Corinthians 10.13 tell us? Be careful, actually verse 12 and then 13 follows it, but be careful ye who think ye stand, lest ye fall. And God says it in Proverbs and many of the prophets in many locations. I won't even take you to all of them tonight. Where he says, don't gloat. Don't take a prideful stance when you see even your enemy come under the discipline of God. It's interesting, just real briefly, at the, in the last chapter of the book, he, he uses that very expression. Now, I'm not going to cover chapter 7, but look at verse 8. Verse 8 marks an, the final section. Verse 8 to 20 is the final section of the book. And, and it, it, it's a clear, to me, a clear demarcation from 7, 1 to 7, which goes with chapter 6. He says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, when I fall. I will arise. Now this is the remnant of God's people after they've been disciplined by the Lord. They've lost everything. And they admit that they're in Jesus, but he says to his enemy, don't rejoice over me. Because what happened, what he goes on to say, what happened to me is going to happen to you next. And that's what he started the prophecy with, right? He said there was addressed to all the nations. It wasn't just Judah and Israel that suffered in this great Assyrian onslaught that was directed by God. You realize that? Secular history says, well, the Assyrians, you know, Sennacherib was such a great general and a great king and, and, and with their gods that they followed and all of that. No, no. The Bible tells us this was God's doing. God raised them up just as He raised up the Babylonians. Just as the contemporary of Micah, Isaiah, will say in Isaiah 45, God will say, and I will raise up Cyrus, who's not an Assyrian, who's not a Babylonian, he's a Persian. He's three empires away from their time frame. 
He's not, believe me, he's not in the remotest glimmer in his father and mother's eye. He is not going to be around for a couple hundred years. 200 years. Till 539 B.C. when the, he would lead the onslaught and finally destroying Babylon and freeing up the people of God to return and build the second temple. And God predicts that 200 years before he's even born. And Ezra 1-1 tells us it happened exactly like Isaiah told us. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is accurate. So Micah says, I'm going to weep and wail because it, it now has moved down south from Samaria in the northern kingdom. That's one thing, you know, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom said, well, my, they deserved that judgment. They turned away from God. They turned away from the temple and they did. You remember, they erected the, those two false calf idols, one in Bethel and one in Dan in the north. But then it came into the southern kingdom. Now it's coming into his hometown. Now it's getting close. And of course, Second Kings and Second Chronicles give us details. You remember when Reb Shaka, the leader of the... Uh, a Syrian army stands outside the fence of Jerusalem and Hezekiah has told his men, don't answer them when they talk to you. Well, Reb Shekha, I mean, the Assyrians knew that they spoke in Hebrew. They spoke in the language of the people they were trying to conquer. And the guards up on the tower said, no, don't, don't talk to us in Hebrew. We don't want the men, the soldiers to hear what you're saying. He says, oh, no, I'm talking in Hebrew because I want you to hear what I'm about to say. When these soldiers have to drink their own excrement, because of the siege that we're going to do to your city, I want them to know what we're about to do to you. And the great king Sennacherib of the Assyrians and so forth, and he threatens them. They circled the city. They began to build a siege ramp, even against Jerusalem, after they took out Lachish and these other nine cities that are listed here in chapter 1. So you see, for Micah... It wasn't just Samaria in some place up, up there. It was right in his own hometown. And then he begins this play on words beginning in verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. You remember someone else that said that? David, right? When he lamented the death of Saul. Tell it not in Gath. Why, why would you say such a thing? In other words... Let not Gath boast about the fact that God's people are going through a difficult time. Right? And it's interesting. Uh, some of our Bibles uh, inform us of these Hebrew words. Gath means tell. And he's playing on the, on the name of the town. Tell it not in the place where telling occurs. Right? Now Gath, if you look on your map, is right near Moresheth where Micah's hometown is. So he knows these cities. He knows these people. These are people that he has grown up with. And now they are coming under this terrible onslaught of the Assyrian invasion. And now it's becoming very personal, you see. He says, weep not at all, he says in Beth Arpha. Roll yourself in the dust. Pass by naked shame, you inhabitant of Shafir. That was a way of speaking of humbling yourself. Now in our day where so much of this, uh, the lack of clothing is such a problem in our culture, we, we see this in the wrong way. This was, this was done in an honorable way, but it was a way to show humiliation, grief, mourning. All right? That's what you need to see when you see that word here, just as, we, as he used it down in verse 8. And he works through these. There, there are actually 12 place names he mentions here, nine cities. They form a circle around his city, Moresheth. And disaster comes from the Lord, verse 12, to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant, this is important, verse 13. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Now this is fascinating. This is the only place that I know of in the Bible where this is mentioned. It's not mentioned in Kings. It's not mentioned in Chronicles. 
It's not mentioned in Second Samuel. I mean, have you ever wondered? I mean, you know, Samaria had a bad influence on Jerusalem. And then the leaders of Samaria and the prophets of Samaria had a bad influence on the leaders and prophets in Jerusalem. But did you know that it was Lachish was the stronghold of sin in the southern kingdom? They were the ones that really brought the judgment upon the southern kingdom. And that's why they were destroyed and Jerusalem wasn't in this Assyrian invasion. It's so important to recognize and deal with the source of sin in our lives. And there's no way you and I are going to know what that is apart from quiet time with the Lord. No way. Quiet time in His Word. That's why we call it a quiet time. You've got to find a place that's quiet. Where you're alone, it's a still, small voice. Not a literal voice, but a still, small voice that He speaks. And He, he is revealing things to me that are giving me great liberty from, from attitudes and behaviors that I've had for years that I didn't even know I had sometimes. And I wouldn't have never known it. Now you say, well, why? you could have gone to a Christian counselor and got these things too. Well, maybe in some cases you could if it was really a Christian counselor and he really took you to the Word of God. And sometimes in certain conditions, a third party, you know, apart from the parties that need to be reconciled, needs to be brought in to help bring reconciliation, help it to occur. But not always. Most of the time, I believe this, that most of the time, just in quiet interaction between us and the Lord in His Word, we can get deliverance, victories, in areas of sin in our life that we haven't had victories for for a long time. And I'm talking about behavioral problems. I'm talking about, you know, like anger or fear or a vengeful spirit or an attitude that, that wants to retaliate quickly and not give time for things to be resolved. Sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a sinful pattern of behavior that we have developed in our minds, a thought process that we developed maybe when we were children. Some of you have, I'm sure you listen to Unshackled on the radio, you know, where they give testimonies of these various Christians that have come to Pacific Garden Mission there in Chicago and how they got deliverance from the Scriptures. They, they didn't go to a Christian counselor. Now, some of them, I'm saying, sometimes that's valuable, Okay. I'm not throwing, throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that. There is value in some cases, but not in every case. And not in most cases. And you and I know, this, is, this is, applies to a real pastoral area that all of us can be involved in. You and I know people, in addition to ourselves, we always need help. I didn't hear an amen on that one. But I know it's true. We always need help for ourselves. But there are others that we can help too if we know what Scriptures to take them to to experience the deliverance that God wants us to have. Beloved, what does the Bible describe us as at the end of Romans chapter 8? What's the word Paul uses? We are super overcomers. Through him who loved us. That's the direct translation is, is more than overcomers, is how we translate in English, but a hooper with overcome, nikao. So we are super overcomers. Overcomers of what? Overcomers of anything. You and I do not have to be in bondage to anything. You believe that? That's what Romans 6 tells us. It leads into Romans 8. We have been set free. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the principle or law of sin and death. There isn't any principle of sin working in our lives or fear of death working in our lives that we cannot overcome through Him who loved us. But there's a process, there's a method. We have to be involved. We have to desire growth and sanctification, becoming the overcomers that Christ has called us to by His blood 
and has enabled us to be by his spirit. So Micah describes, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, the end of verse 13, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Now again, we wouldn't know that apart from Micah. So God used a prophet local to the area of Lachish, Micah, not Isaiah who was more local to Jerusalem or Hosea who was more local to Samaria in the north, right? He used a local prophet to reveal the, the problem in that local area. To me, that's another fascinating principle that God uses. Now, if you're wondering, well, what transgressions of Israel is he talking about? It's a pretty general statement. Well, he's going to outline them in detail in chapter 2 and 3. But there's one statement again in chapter 6 which parallels chapter 2 and 3. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and most of the works of Ahab's house are done. Is that what it says? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have believed this if I hadn't seen it in the Scriptures with my own eyes. Now, most of us, even in some way, are acquainted with Ahab and Jezebel, Right? I mean, you all have done that maybe in some of the children's Sunday schools and that. And the Ahab and Jezebel story. And, and what a wicked man. And yet what a man... I mean, if Ahab came into this room, you'd like him. He, he was a man... He was charismatic. He had a great personality, apparently. And he was smooth. I mean, he could make you like him. And he was a tremendous engineer. I've seen the tunnel that he dug up in Megiddo, and we'll look at that, those of us that go to Israel, Lord willing, next year. The great tunnel that was dug by Ahab and his engineers, he was a tremendous engineer and architect. He single-handedly built the, the great city of Samaria, which was destroyed by the Assyrians, and really built up the city of Megiddo, which was one of his secondary palaces. And yet the statutes of Omri, the forerunner to Ahab, and Omri was a total idolater. Omri believed that military might was power. And you don't need God if you have the latest military machinery. And Ahab believed that too. And they both lived and prospered for a time under that thesis. And so what are some of the things Lachish introduced? Well, the excavations at Lachish have uncovered a tremendous walled city, elaborate military hardware that they, which was pretty even significant for its day, technologically. And what had they done? They decided that they would trust in their military genius instead of God. And therefore, they didn't need God. And if they had Bibles around, they were on the shelf somewhere because they, they didn't need them, right? They had their military might. But what did God do? He brought in an army much stronger than they were, the Assyrians. Much more wicked than they were much more violent. And there was a great clash. And that's all depicted in those reliefs that have been uncovered in Nineveh. And what the, what the Assyrians did to the people of Lachish is unspeakable in the atrocities that they did. I'm not going to tell you about them. I mean, you wouldn't even be able to imagine the things they did to people. And, and they would do it and just delight in doing it. They delighted in inflicting this kind of pain and paling people all over the place and, and it, it was a terrible scene very bloody scene very car carnage scene of carnage therefore Micah says in verse 14 of chapter 1 you shall give presents to Moresheth Gath the houses of Axib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel you can look these up but all these words Axib means lie and so and now the houses of Axib are going to be a lie I will yet bring an heir to you are inhabitants of Marisha Marisha it means possession or or inheritance, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. 
Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your, again, the picture of mourning, because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they, your precious children, shall go from you into captivity. And these precious children of theirs that went into captivity never came back. For the most part, the northern kingdom, for sure, the tribes of the northern kingdom, very few of them came back after the captivity. And, and then in the southern kingdom, proportionately, very few came back even for the southern kingdom when they started the second temple period. This is so important. And what the Lord is informing them by these plays on words is a principle that we see all the way through the Bible. It's a principle he still uses today. Now the Latin for it is lex talionis, which we call talionic justice. You've heard of that? Talionic justice? It comes from Exodus chapter 21. The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life, so forth. And what's the principle in that? You know, of course, the Lord showed in, in the Sermon on the Mount that they, the, the Jews took it and used it the wrong way. The Pharisees took it and used it the wrong way. But what did God mean by that? He didn't mean that they were to do more punishment than necessary. He, he meant that they were to do the punishment was to be proportionate to the crime. Right? In other words, you lose a tooth, you don't take their whole head off. It's a tooth for a tooth. They lose a tooth. You lose a hand, they lose a hand. In other words, God is saying that He's, he's restraining an inordinate, vengeful spirit, right? Because when we want to retaliate with a vengeful spirit, now don't look at, look at me like you never thought vengeful thoughts, because I know you're a human like me. We all struggle with that. I mean, your blood's not any different color than mine. We're in my blood, I bleed red just like you. And, and so, yes, we, but we tend to retaliate too much, don't we? Have you seen that in pastoral work? When you're working with children and, and, a, and a child gets hurt or you're working with adults in the assembly and one gets hurt, the principle usually is, and it's a fleshly principle, right? If they're walking according to the Spirit, it won't be that way, but... But if they're in, the, in a fleshly attitude, the tendency is to want more out of that person than the damage they really inflicted on us. Right? And our Lord is not like that. We would expect the one who is perfect as, as judge, and He's the perfect judge, right? That in His judgment, it's always going to be proportionately according to what's needed. You know, some of us, we talk about different personalities. Some of us, as we're growing up, we look at what our peers suffer for their mistakes and we say, wow, I'm not going to try that. I see what happened to them. You know what I mean by that? Some of us, and we can't take credit for that. We just have to give glory to God. That's how He made us. Now, I, I praise the Lord. I thank the Lord. He made me like that. I could look at my older brother and I could look at my friends and I saw when they did certain evil things, certain consequences happened and I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk right into that. I know better, right? By looking at them. But then there are some personalities that, well, they, as we say, they learn everything the hard way. And I've known some people like that too. And you can give them instruction you can try to impart wisdom to them, and they're going to find they're going to they're going to go to the to the limit on every little thing, and it's a hard road <laughs> for people like that. But they can be saved too, and they can be used of God. So it's it's helpful to make those distinctions. Now in Galatians six seven, and 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 I would like for you to see this with your own eyes because this is such an important principle. Following on this principle that, that uh, Micah is developing here in chapter 1, Paul lays out a very important principle, <coughs> excuse me, which is an amplification of this same idea in verse 7 and 8, right? You're familiar with this, what's called the law of the harvest. 
This is so important. If we would think about, if our young people, oh, if they would think about, if when I was a young person, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I wished I had thought about these things when I was a young person, when you young people are thinking about it. That's why I say that. If you would think about the law of the harvest before you make certain decisions, oh, you'd save yourself a lot of heartache. And you'd save your parents a lot of heartache too. And you'd save your elders a lot of heartache. The law of the harvest is this. Do not be deceived, God says. God is not mocked. See, this is where you don't play around with God, right? He's not a mocker. He's not going to let you mock Him. He's not going to let you manipulate Him. He's not going to let you abuse Him. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. That's the principle. In in, in the harvest area, I look around, most of us probably haven't grown up on a farm. Few of us have. But when you plant grain in the field, do you expect apple trees at harvest time? No. And if you do, I'm sorry, you're in for a huge disappointment. Now, could God bring up apple trees from grain seeds if He wanted to? Oh, yes, He sure could. And sometimes He does supernatural activities, doesn't He? But normally he follows the natural pattern, the natural laws he has set up on this universe. So you plant grain, you reap it. But another aspect of the harvest is this. When you plant it, do you reap it right away? Oh, there's a long time gap between the time you plant it and the time you reap it. Right? And not only that, the whole idea of farming works. Because you plan to reap more than you planted, right? You sow a few seeds, but sometimes 30-fold. I mean, I remember Dan Smith telling us up in the St. Louis area where he grew up that 60-fold was a great return on a harvest. But the Bible talks about 100-fold in the land of Israel in its fruitful days. The soil was so good and the climate. But whatever it is, you, you reap what you sowed, right? You reap later than you sowed it, and you reap more than what you sowed. Now that ought to be enough of a principle to scare any of us. (laughs) But you know what? It doesn't always work. Because my, we've been teaching Galatians 6, 7, and 8 for a long time. And there are a lot of people that are going to test God on this one. See if it really works. You brethren who are older in the Lord. I'll put myself with your category. I'm compared to most in here, right? The younger ones, older in the Lord. Been around, walking around this planet. Uh, eh, you don't have to show hands if you want to. Uh, nod your head. Does this law work? Does this principle work? Does it work? Any doubt about it? If one of the young people came up to you and said, you know, once in a while, did you skip it? Once in a while, did did the Lord... No, it it works every time. So he says in verse 8, if you sow to the flesh, you're not going to reap the fruit of the Spirit. Period. Not going to happen. You're going to reap what instead? Corruption. You know, that's like a... A smelly, rotten egg. Corruption. That's what you're going to reap. And he says, likewise, to encourage us, you sow to the Spirit and you're going to reap everlasting life, continued fruitfulness, the joy of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit, he describes in chapter 5. So it's so important to see this principle. And that's what, as we close out Micah chapter 1, we want to remember. That's what the Lord is trying to do through Micah chapter 1 to any reader of his prophecy and certainly to the ones that Micah gave those prophecies to. He's saying, look, in this area of moral decision making, God says, it's it's real important to me. And especially if you're carrying my name. 
because he held Judah and Israel to a higher account because they had the oracles of God. The other nations didn't, right? But the other nations didn't get a free pass either. Lebanon didn't get a free pass. Egypt didn't get a free pass. Syria didn't get a free... They were all destroyed too. The Hittites. You can't hardly find anything left of the Hittite empire. And it was a great empire in its day. Wiped out by the Assyrians and others. And so the Lord would tell us through this chapter, realize that I'm the sovereign Lord. And I will call to account. There's a great phrase that I'll just read it. You don't have to look at it. In Luke chapter 16, you remember the parable of the unjust steward? And I think this verse 2 just summarizes Micah chapter 1 so well. He called him the unjust steward. And what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. For you are no longer going to be steward. Now, if that creates an element of sadness in your heart for Judah and Israel and the great opportunity, it should. does me. You realize from 1446 B.C. to 722, roughly 700 years, the nation of Israel was the light of God to the world. That's what, that's what He created. That's why He put them in the land, right? To be a light to the Gentile nations around them. And that's why the Gentile nations around them were also accountable and also had to suffer the discipline of the Lord, but not to the same degree his own people did. Because God is a just judge. And to whom much is given, much is required. Boy, my mom drilled me on that one when I was a kid. Much is given, much is required. So it's a solemn thing. So as we close out our thinking tonight, we move into chapter 2. He's going to expose, first of all, the land barons and their greediness in the first part of the chapter, and then the false prophets in the second part of the chapter. And we'll be looking at that. Take a chance to uh, look at that if you can between now and Tuesday night, if you can be with us. And, then, and we'll probably get into a little bit of chapter 3 where he begins to talk about the rulers. And, and we're going to make the parallel. We're not just going to look at this in a historical way. We're going to see the history of it. But we're going to apply it. The scriptures are supposed to be applied. Right, beloved? And we're going to apply it. We're going to say those land barons are a picture of elders and leaders. And the false prophets are a picture of Bible teachers. Because that's what the New Testament tells us we should do. Right? And we're going to see what are the principles we can learn from their mistakes. That we don't make those mistakes as well. So I think it will be a rich study. But again, this verse to the unjust steward. Give an account of your stewardship, for you will no longer be steward. I'm going to remove the lampstand. I take away your time to represent me here on the planet. It's solemn. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4 2, well, he says in 4 1, Do you realize, beloved, that? We have been called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Now he's speaking primarily of the apostles in that verse, right? But then the apostles passed it on, 2 Timothy 2, 2, right? To faithful men, and faithful men passed it on to others, and that's how it's passed down through the history of the church. What are the mysteries of God? Well, they're the truths of the Scriptures, the Gospel, and, and all the things that go with it. You realize we walk down here to the... To the uh, Hess station down here and talk to some of the people in the parking lot and inside. Do they understand or appreciate the mysteries of God? No. Most of them wouldn't know. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't care. They want to pump their gas and get out of their way or they'll run over you and they're going to get out of there and go do their thing. But you and I have. And he goes on to say in 4.2 and this is what God requires of stewards. What is it? That they be found faithful. Now, if you think that's a work salvation, you're going to have to take that up with the Lord and the Word of God. You say, well, God can require things of stewards. He sure can. And He does. And He's going to. 
So if there are things that you and I, I speak this to myself as just as much as to everyone in this room, if there are things that we can think about tonight, given the fact that we are stewards and we're going to be accountable to a holy God, you realize that the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ, which is where we're going to give our account, there doesn't have to be anything bad on that sheet. You realize that? We can deal with any of those matters now. And God would say, deal with them now. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I've given you a way to be cleansed through the confession of 1 John 1, nine. Do it now. You can be at a clean slate. And you say, well, some of these are going to take a while, brother. Some of these people I haven't talked to in 30 years that I need to make restitution with. Start now. <laughs> Start the process now. God knows. He knows our hearts. I can remember right after I was saved, there were a few people that I knew. Right away, the Lord put on my heart that I knew I had recently hurt. And suddenly, you know, I didn't even realize it when I heard them. You know, I was an unbeliever and I was just pressing on through life. And after I get saved, suddenly I have this heart. And, and man, I went by the Lord's grace to great extremes to try to find them. Calling up their mom and calling up, you know, trying to a friend, you know, where, well, they're up in Austin. Well, I need to talk to them. I want to make amends on this deal and get it right. And then what a freedom. What a freedom comes with that. Well, that would be something we'd learn and take away from us tonight from Micah chapter 1. And there'll be a lot of other rich instruction and encouragement for us, I think, in the remainder of this book. Good to be with you tonight. So good to see Brother Steve. Boy, what a blessing to time it out where you're here when I'm here, brother. So, More than in Houston. (laughs) Sorry about that. That's true. It kind of works out that way. (laughs) We'll work on that one. And great to be with the Wainwrights. I know they're going to be traveling. Lord bless them on that. And so many of you. Press on for the Lord. What a Savior we have. And what a privilege we have to serve Him. Father, we are so thankful for Your love and grace. We're thankful for Your Word. What instruction it gives us. You want to help us, Lord. You're not against us. You want to help us. It's we that get against You. It's we that put up an umbrella of sin that keeps the experience of the love of God from our lives, even though the love is pouring down all the time. Oh, Lord, help us to really enjoy the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. There's no reason why we can't. And to help others enjoy it too, not just ourselves. Ourselves and others too. Give us a good week for you. Give us traveling mercies as we travel home. We bless you and praise you and thank you in the marvelous name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.